0: Hi, my name is John Torpey, and I am director of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute that brings scholarly expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. Today, we explore the Dayton Accords that settled the conflict in Bosnia on the occasion of the twenty-fifth anniversary of their adoption in nineteen ninety-five. We're fortunate to have with us today Professor Susan Woodward of the PhD program in Political Science here at the Graduate Center. A specialist on the Balkans, her current research focuses on transitions from civil war to peace, international security and state failure, and post-war state building. She was a member of the United Nations Committee of Experts on Public Administration from 2010 to 2014 a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C. from 1990 to 1999, and then at the Center for Defense Studies at King's College, London, 1999 to 2000. She was head of the Analysis and Assessment Unit for unpro in 1994, and a professor of political science at Yale, 1982 to 89, at Williams College, 1978 to 82, and at Northwestern University, 1972 to 77. Her many writings include books: uh, the books The Ideology of Failed States, Why Intervention Fails from Cambridge University Press in 2017, Balkan Tragedy, Chaos and Dissolution After the Cold War, <coughs> and Socialist Unemployment, The Political Economy of Yugoslavia, 1945 to 1990, which was published by Princeton University Press in 1995. Thank you so much for joining us today, Susan Woodward.
1: You're welcome, John.
0: Great to have you. So, Maybe we could set the stage and remind people what happened in Bosnia and what the Dayton Accords were seeking to resolve. The conflict in Bosnia shocked many observers for the episodes of crimes against humanity and genocide for the first time on European soil after World War II. It was mistakenly believed by many from the outside as the, the, to, to have been the result of longstanding ethnic tensions, but you argued in your book, Balkan Tragedy, that in fact, it was the result of long-term t- political and economic dynamics inside the former Yugoslavia. Could you briefly explain what brought the states of the former Yugoslavia to war at that time?
1: I'll try to be brief. My book was almost 500 pages. So Slovenia and Croatia, which were two of the six republics and two provinces of federal Yugoslavia chose to secede from Yugoslavia, making the argument on the grounds of the right to national self-determination. But there was no solution offered for the other four federal republics or two provinces. And in fact, Germany even wanted the other four republics and two provinces to remain as a rump Yugoslavia. But this was especially a problem for the case of Bosnia-Herzegovina because Bosnia is a republic of three nations, so three having the right to national self-determination. Although some major foreign policy leaders warned Germany very intensely five months before the war began not to recognize the two Slovene and Croat um, projects without a solution first for Bosnia, that it would lead to horrendous war they were ignored, but sadly they were right. It is worth remembering moreover that there is no international right to secede, nor was there such a constitutional right within the Yugoslav constitution as several cases in the preceding years to the Supreme Court confirmed. But Europeans ignored international law and Yugoslav law. The Slovenes initiated this independence project and were given early support from Switzerland, and Austria, and even Norway. But the reason was basically a tax revolt. As the wealthiest republic in Yugoslavia, and after a decade of austerity policies imposed for International Monetary Fund loans, they said, why should we pay for the others, or even for the federal budget, including the army? At the same time on the preceding year in Croatia, there were also quite nasty right-wing nationalist attacks against minority Serbs, again on nationalist grounds. Uh, but the Serbs were, already, were 11% of the population of Croatia, not a small minority. And also since 1981, a whole decade, there was a movement by the Albanian majority in Kosovo province to get republic status. Not to leave, but to get the full status of a rep- republic. But the war could only happen when the Europeans agreed to break the country up, but without a solution for the rest of it.
0: Thank you for that helpful recounting of what led to this, as you say, Balkan tragedy in the uh, title of your book. So that's what the Dayton Agreement was meant to address. can you talk about you know the extent to which it uh, was successful in doing that?
1: Yes, I would like to. So let me say first, John, that I find it very interesting that the only time outsiders talk about Bosnia seems to be at anniversaries, mm. <laughs> on all of them of the 1995 peace agreement, which in fact has changed greatly since. We had conferences at the 10th anniversary then a few at the 15th anniversary, and now attention at the 25th anniversary, which is actually a very long time, if you think about it. And I suspect that there is a similar pattern for lack of American attention to any place we do not consider in our strategic interest. But as for your question, no, the Dayton Agreement did not resolve any of the conflicts that led to the war, did not resolve any of the conflicts that led to war in Bosnia-Herzegovina, Nor did it address any of the conflicts over the province of Kosovo, where I mentioned the Albanian pressure, or in Macedonia. Indeed, the ethno national conflicts and segregation in Bosnia are much worse than in 1995. Part of the reason is that the Dayton Agreement legitimized ethno national identities and territory and territorial and community separation. And part of the reason is that the United States has been periodically trying to revise the agreement under constitutional reform ever since. The U.S. has been pushing for a more centralized state than than the Dayton Accord created, but that is the party platform of only one of the Bosnian parties, the Bosniak or Bosnian Muslim Party, not of the other two Bosnian nations, Serbs and Croats. And perhaps I should explain that the three nations of Bosnia were defined by religion based on the Ottoman Millet system. But in August 1993, a year and a half after the war began, the Bosnian Muslim leadership decided um, that Serbs and Croats were not known by outsiders for their religion, even though, yes, Serbs are Orthodox Christians and Croats are Roman Catholics and it's religion that defines their nationality. So the Bosnian Muslims felt they needed for reasons of international propaganda to choose this new name, one that had been used in the early part of the 20th century, and it has worked. So most people who don't know much about the case assume that Bosniaks are Bosnians, not just one of its ethno-national groups. There is also no consideration in the U.S. plans for other groups such as Jews or those who continue to identify as Yugoslavs or a category in the constitution called others. Although the current pressure from American activists is to switch entirely to the concept of individual citizens, not national rights, a much more radical change that I'm sure will never get support. Bosnian Serbs and Croats went to war out of fear of Bosniak domination. So these periodic efforts by the U.S. only keep the original conflict and war alive. U.S. pressure for internally displaced Bosnians of all categories and Bosnian refugees in other countries to return to their pre-war home after Dayton was signed has also kept the issues of the war alive. And in this case, led to quite a bit of violence at the local level to prevent these returns. At the same time, the agreement established a very complex decision-making structure, giving veto power to leaders of all three groups and a highly decentralized federal system of cantons and provinces. The result has been 25 years of paralysis. No decisions get made, while the elected politicians receive humongous salaries in contrast to the poverty of the population. And the World Bank and International Monetary Fund have been insisting on policy since early 1996, once the Dayton Accord was signed, that reproduce all the difficulties during the 1980s that led to the economic and political crisis in Yugoslavia, and thus the causes of the breakup. This, by way, is far more concerning to me than the constitutional problems of the Dayton Accord and its multiple revisions since 1995. No one expects a war to begin again, but that's not because of the Dayton Agreement, but because of the -the over-the-horizon NATO and more recently European Union troops who would rush back into Bosnia and put a stop. But the parties to continue to fight the war, only not with violence. As I said, this is a very long time, more than half of the entire duration of federal Yugoslavia between 1945 and 1990, which also emerged from civil war and external intervention during World War II, and built a developed, industrialized country with a foreign policy that gave Yugoslavs access with their passports to more countries in the world than any other. Whatever one thinks of single-party rule, Yugoslavs had a very good life, traveled all over the world, and had substantial global leadership, such as with the creation of the non-alignment movement, that nothing has moved in Bosnia for 25 years, makes the contrast even sadder.
0: So it does. Uh, It's all a reminder of what a complicated construct uh, Yugoslavia, which simply means South Slavia land, right?
1: Um, No, South, South Slavia.
0: Yes, yeah, south, exactly. Um, and, you know, it was a kind of artificial construct and then unraveled in these unfortunate ways.
1: John, John I have to interrupt you. Uh-huh. That the, the argument that it was artificial was the low, the argument Slovenia and Croatia made to allow themselves to go out. Uh-huh. Any, any state is, except maybe one that is on a continent like the United States, any state is artificial if you want right. to think about it that way. But that's a propaganda argument you have just made.
0: I see. Okay, well, I'll stop making it. Um, tell me, uh, you've spent a lot of time in the meantime thinking about you know, the consequences of international interventions, uh, such as in Kosovo and what's now called North Macedonia and other cases such as South Sudan and the negotiations in Iraq. I mean, how do you think the Dayton or Bosnia case influenced those later interventions?
1: Well, I think it's worth beginning with how different the Bosnian case was treated in contrast to international negotiations before then, most specifically in El Salvador and Mozambique, when a military victory or stalemate was a trigger for negotiations, and where the negotiators, Alvaro de Soto in the case of El Salvador and Aldo Ayello from Mozambique, agreed to be the civilian head of peace implementation missions after the agreement. So each had a direct incentive to negotiate something that could actually be implemented. And especially in the case of El Salvador, there was also a regional group of countries, the Contadora Group, who first engaged in helping get the people in El Salvador to the bargaining table, and then the UN Secretary General agreed to help. These were very successful missions, agreements. But in contrast for Bosnia, despite the argument made by many and still now, that the problem was the lack of international action early on, there was a successful negotiation by Cyrus Vance for Croatia with the uh, minority Serbs that led to a UN peacekeeping operation in January 1992. But it was then extended to provide a, a humanitarian aid delivery and negotiate local ceasefires in Bosnia from then on, even before the war began. And there were ongoing European Union and United Nations joint-sponsored peace negotiations, even before the beginning of the war and during it. The Dayton Accord was, in fact, the seventh peace plan for Bosnia of these ongoing negotiations, but the U.S. refused to support any of them. The U.S. support for one of the three warring parties, the Bosniaks, Bosnian Muslims, whom I've mentioned before, Gave them a strong incentive to keep fighting so that the war went on for almost four years. And then, rather than a military victory or stalemate, the US, using NATO air power, bombed the Bosnian Serbs. We, the United States, said it was to force them to the bargaining table, but in fact, the Bosnian Serbs were already at the table and agreed. While the bombing was actually to persuade the Bosniaks the um, so-called clients in the sense of the United States, to come to the bargaining table by giving them what they had asked for. And of course it worked. Then the negotiations at Dayton were never face-to-face, but shuttle diplomacy, even though at the same um, military base, air base in Dayton, Ohio, by negotiators moving among the parties. And the agreement was actually negotiated among the Bosniak leadership of Alia Izetbegovic and the presidents of neighboring Croatia and Serbia, as if they represented Bosnian Croats and Bosnian Serbs, both of whom were never included in the negotiations, a principle of all peace negotiations that, ha- that only succeed if they are inclusive. Now, let me say a few other influences. First, the idea that this was, as you mentioned wrongly, an argument about ethnic or national identity and conflict. It was not an ethnic conflict, but one of conflicting rights to a state based on national self-determination. However, Americans from the beginning and continuing on now still see it as an ethnic conflict, what even was called ancient ethnic hostilities which is nonsense if you know anything about the history of Bosnia or even Yugoslavia. One example, of course, of this definition is the application of the genocide conventions. The same lens of ethno-national conflict has been applied to Iraq. In in 2006, then-Vice President Joseph Biden wrote an op-ed in the New York Times with the president of the Council on Foreign Relations at the time, Les Gelb, recommending that Iraq be divided territorially into three units based on religion, explicitly based on the Bosnian model, which they called a success. You can certainly see that I do not agree. Iraqis were furious because they've always seen themselves as citizens of a single nation state, as Iraqis, whatever their various religious affiliations. There's a similar parallel to our treatment in Afghanistan, and equal Afghan opposition to it. I can agree to a certain extent that the Bosnian War created ethnic animosities, but they were not the cause, and I'm sure that's true for all the other cases I know. A second lesson has to do with the concept of power-sharing consociational agreements for getting a peace settlement. While some people argue that power-sharing compromises among all warring parties, that means giving each party a governmental role in a consociational consensus mechanism for decision-making, are useful as a transitional mechanism. But I see no evidence for that, and I've looked at many, many examples. And their consequences, these power-sharing agreements, are to institutionalize ethnic religious differences and conflict and to create unending instability. And in most cases, a return to war as we saw in South Sudan. I will be curious in this regard to see how the negotiations between the Taliban and the Afghan government go. My third lesson is that there was very little or no consultation with local citizens. It's interesting that in the European Union and US negotiations to end the conflict between the majority Macedonian Slav Macedonian and minority Albanian population in what, as you said, now we now call North Macedonia as a result of an agreement with Greece, um, that the EU and US negotiators refused to talk to any of the highly organized civil society organizations, and include, including a referendum that they organized to oppose what was called the Ohrid agreement, but they were totally ignored. Similarly in Kosovo, none of the negotiators talked to minority Serbs and were were and remain highly critical of Serbia in ongoing European Union and now also U.S. negotiations between Belgrade and Pristina. My fourth lesson is that Bosnia was the first example of a NATO deployment and beginning of an entirely new history of international action for NATO in contrast to its Article Five commitment to its members up until then. Now NATO is everywhere and its most recent strategy document just a month ago is aimed at what is called the China threat and it has an Allied Rapid Reaction Corps permanent that was first formed to go into Bosnia in 1995 and established as a NATO war-fighting corps to be held in readiness. Fifth, the World Bank sent representatives to the Bosnian case, and thereafter, beginning with Guatemala, to weigh in on its views about the design of the state for what the bank considers fiscal responsibility. That also established a new institutional pattern. But both the State Department team with Richard Holbrook at Dayton and the World Bank representative, were completely ignorant of the Yugoslav system and of Bosnian history and context. The European diplomats had far better knowledge and intelligence, but they were hobbled by the need for consensus among them, but even more so by the United States wanting to be what Madeleine Albright called the indispensable nation. Bosnian policy was from the very beginning and still is driven by very partisan low-level diplomats in the State Department, plus highly mobilized citizen activist groups working for one side. In my book, Balkan Tragedy, I criticize the Clinton administration for taking the side of the Bosnian Muslims, the Bosniaks, although we know they did it not for the local result, but to please Muslim countries such as Turkey and Malaysia. But because to support only one of the three sides to the war was to ignore and undermine the very country that Bosnian Muslims needed, Bosnia-Herzegovina as a whole, a country of all three nations and others. The Bosniaks lose if they lose Bosnia as a whole.
0: Thank you for that uh, critical view of uh, how the Bosnian story was taken forward by others. And more recently, you've also written critically about this period and uh, the way in which it developed the idea of state failure uh, or the way it came out of this period. And I wonder, um, you know, could you talk a little bit further about the relationship between you know, why peace-building operations and international intervention seem to fail.
1: Well, I'll start with just the concept of state failure, because um, your question is a a very broad one, (laughs) Uh, another large book. But I argue in that book that the end of the Cold War provoked a large and interesting set of debates about the basis of national for the U.S. and global security, for others to redefine the role of military forces and national and international security for the post-Cold War period. There were many concepts, for example, human security, cooperative security, rogue states, and so forth. But the concept that won in the debates during the 1990s was failed states. The argument was that failed states were the cause of all the evils internationally. Terrorism, nuclear proliferation, trafficking in illicit goods, or human beings for prostitution or slavery, mass violations of human rights, civil war, humanitarian crises and refugee flows, and so forth. I also argue that there's no such thing as a failed state. Although one can certainly find many examples, even in the United States at times, of states that are failing their citizens in specific ways. But the concept of failed state was promoted first in the early 1990s, and Bosnia was a very important role in this promotion by people wanting to have the United, mainly in the U.S. State Department, wanting to have the United Nations be more active interveners in conflict areas and for peace building now that the conflict between the U.S. and the Soviet Union no longer blocked the Security Council, but also being promoted by aid agencies like the USAID to justify continuing development assistance now that the Soviet Union was no longer perceived as a threat. They had to find a new threat to persuade especially American congressmen. And the wars finally in former Yugoslavia played a major part in this reaction, because it led so many ordinary people to see a rash of civil wars at the time, even though the conflicts in El Salvador, Namibia, and Mozambique occurred before the end of the Cold War and were resolved by UN negotiations very successfully. And most influentially of all the actors on this conceptual front and debate was the World Bank, which under a new president in 1995, um, Wolfenson, established what he called a failed state task force to resolve a problem the bank was having because more than 80% of countries that were then engaged in armed conflict were in arrears to the bank. That is, they were not able to repay bank loans. They were, in a word, failing the World Bank. And as a bank, which needs to have loans repaid, was even threatening its existence. But over time, the concept of failed states and a new label, fragile states, that was created by those who wanted to be more diplomatic like the British came to mean that a country's government did not have the specific capacities or the political will to adopt the policies that these external actors, aid agencies, the international financial institutions, the United Nations agencies were insisting on. So like the bank, these countries were seen to be failing these external actors, even though the policies had been and continue to be shown to do more damage to them. So that in my view, these local politicians and governments were correct not to follow external demands. But failed states has now become such a common label and even accusation that no one questions it anymore. But I consider it highly insulting all the many, many indexes of failed or fragile states identify more than 80% of countries in the world to be failed states. Surely there's something wrong about that. And to the extent there are issues to be addressed in the countries labeled failed states, wouldn't it be better to identify those issues specifically? Civil war, poverty and underdevelopment, A balance of payments crisis due to a radical shift in the country's terms of trade, organized crime networks, regime change operations, especially launched by the United States, and then design actions appropriate to each specific cause or difficulty, one would hope effectively, rather than just use this label of failed states.
0: Well, this is all a very useful reminder that, um, you know, terminology and framing of things can really have very profound consequences for what people do actually in the world. Um, And against that background, I guess I'd like to ask one last question, which has to do with whether you think, I'm not optimistic really here about the answer, (laughs) but whether you think the international community has learned anything over the past 25 years regarding negotiated peace settlements and interventions in conflict zones that, you know, Can use going forward.
1: (laughs) You guessed right. I fear it has not learned anything about future peace settlements. Now, peacekeeping and peacebuilding operations, those that go in after an agreement and mainly under United Nations auspices, have made many changes since 1995. But I'm not sure I would call them improvements. In my book, The Ideology of Failed States, I show that all the improvements are in enhancing the operational capacity and resources of these international actors, not any change or improvement in the strategy within countries or even resources to them. And I document this quite thoroughly. Diplomats continue to employ a power-sharing solution in peace negotiations, which, as I mentioned, is not a solution at all. Moreover, civil wars these days are ever more complex than the number of parties and the fragmentation of warring parties, so that the standard diplomatic methods for negotiating a peace settlement or even a ceasefire agreement, as bilateral agreements between a government and rebels, no longer suit apply to current conflicts. It didn't for Bosnia either. The consequence is a large number of long-running UN missions that are just holding actions but do not, in fact, reduce the violence. One of our former students at the Graduate Center in Political Science who works at the United Nations on peacemaking and peacebuilding even argues these days that the best thing would be simply to stop all UN peace missions and then we might talk about what can be done in the future.
0: Well, that's... uh... (laughs) An unexpected and counterintuitive uh, conclusion, but uh, I can see where it comes from uh, based on the analysis you've offered. So that's it for today's uh, episode of International Horizons. I want to thank Susan Woodward of the CUNY Graduate Center for sharing her insights about the legacy of the Dayton Accords that sought to settle the Bosnian conflict of the 1990s. Please subscribe to International Horizons on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud and leave us a review. Uh, I want to thank the Otto Walter Foundation for its support of this podcast series. I also want to thank Meryl Sovner for her help in producing this episode and Hristo Voinov for his technical assistance. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us for this episode of International Horizons. We look forward to new horizons in 2021. See you then.